But hey, uh, today we're beginning a brand new series, uh, and I've, I've been really excited about this. This is something I've been thinking about and planning and praying for, because uh, as we gather uh, on the first Sunday of 2018, uh, I have some hopes for us as a church. I have some, some maybe goals for us as a church, and, and one of them is that I want to see uh, 2018 uh, really be a year that, that we run hard uh, after the heart of God. That my, my hope would be that spiritually that this would be a year that, that we grow in our knowledge and our love of the Lord, that we would look back at the end of the year and say to ourselves, hey, this was a year that we really experienced some things. This is a, a year that we really grew, that this was kind of a, a year like uh, any other year in our relationship with, with the Lord, that we would really grow and, and walk uh, by faith. In fact, I would invite you uh, to come to that uh, annual ministry celebration on the 21st, because at that meeting, I'm going to share with us some of the goals and some of the, the things I've been thinking about uh, for us as a church. And I think it'll be a really great time to be together. Uh, but I've been really excited about starting this series. Uh, one of the things you have to know is I absolutely love being your pastor. In fact, uh, I consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to share the word of God at this church week in and week out. And so I'm really excited to start this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to prepare you, we're going to be in this series for probably about three months. Uh, but Jesus, uh, this is his most famous sermon. This is a sermon that probably took days for him to deliver. This is probably more of a retreat than a one-time deal. And what happens is there's so many topics, so many things that he hits on that it won't seem like that long. In fact, uh, every week it should probably kind of seem like a different message because uh, Jesus is going to talk about to us all these kind of different topics. And so I'm really excited about it. And as I've been thinking about specifically today, I keep having this thought, so I thought I would share it with you. Have you ever been to a really big event or a fancy wedding? And what, what normally happens at those really big events or those really fancy weddings is, is usually there's a meal, but I, I don't know who in, invented this, but before the meal, there's hors d'oeuvres. And so if you go, like this, a couple years ago, we went to this really fancy wedding. It happened to be in the summer. Uh, I don't love being dressed up. Like, it could be negative 35, and the minute I put a tie on, I'm warm. It just happens. And so, like, summer weddings are not my favorite thing because you can't wear blue jeans and a T-shirt to a summer wedding, although I think it would be awesome if you could. So we went to this wedding, and it was outside uh, for a while, and, and there were hors d'oeuvres uh, being brought to us by servers. And so they'd come around with the tray, you know, and there were different things. And, and, and the, the thing with the hors d'oeuvres, which the word hors d'oeuvre is just a really big French word for snack, uh, people would bring you snacks, and it was kind of this idea that it's supposed to give you a little something, but it's not actually supposed to, to satisfy you, that, that it's kind of supposed to build anticipation for the meal to come without uh, satisfying your hunger, that, that a really good hors d'oeuvre is supposed to kind of give you a taste uh, that builds your hunger for more. So here's, here's the reality. is like nobody goes to a really big event or a really fancy wedding and is excited about just the hors d'oeuvres. Nobody says, hey, I'll skip on the steak because I, I really love little crackers with things on them, right? Nobody does that. And so today, like my hope is, I feel like my role in all this today is to be an hors d'oeuvre server to you. Like my hope is to come to you with a silver platter and give you some, you know, bacon ramp shrimp. Like that's my hope. But, but what I believe for every single one of us is that there's more, there, there's a steak dinner beyond the hors d'oeuvres. This is just to kind of build your appetite a little bit. 
But I, I want to invite you to, to get into the word of God on, on your own. I, w- I want you to take this to the next level in your own life. Like, don't settle for just the hors d'oeuvre, because we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, because Jesus covers a lot of ground this morning. And every single one of the things that Jesus says in the word this morning is something that I don't think we can ever fully grasp. It's one of those things that, that I think we can grow in and continually come back to. So this is why we created, like in the back of the room, there's study guides. This is why we're doing the Bible study uh, on Tuesday night. What you should come to is because uh, these things are inexhaustible. You can't get to the end of them. So this is just an appetizer, but there's more for us. So don't settle for just the appetizer this morning. So let me pray for us, and we're going to dive right in. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And God, as we come before you this morning, as we open up your word, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you, hearts to love you, ears to hear you. God, I pray that we would be both hearers and doers of your word this morning. Uh, God, I pray that I would just be uh, just a vessel, God, that you would use me, but it would ultimately be your voice that is heard, your word that is delivered. And God, I pray that we would respond to you. So God, we do ask for your help through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would hear these things and understand these things, and God, that you would stir up our affection for you and that we would respond to you in a way that gives you glory and gives us the hope and the life and the joy that only comes from you. So Jesus, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, hey, as we dive into Matthew chapter 5, I feel like what's really important is for me to give you some background or some context of what's happening. Because if we miss this, I think what can happen is we kind of miss the whole story. But Matthew chapter 5, we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 for the next several weeks. And Matthew chapter 5 is actually early in Jesus' ministry. And so what happens is Jesus kind of arrived on the scene. He, was, he, he had John the Baptist, his cousin, who came before him. And the message that both John the Baptist and Jesus gave was this, this totally different, this totally radical message. That they would walk around literally telling people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And like, I don't know that people necessarily fully understood that, but some people did. Some people were so attracted to Jesus and so attracted to his message In fact, one of the reasons that Jesus had such a large following was because of the things that he did that no one else was able to do. So as Jesus would be out uh, doing ministry, out meeting with people, that that people would bring him people that were sick, and Jesus would touch their bodies or command their bodies, and they would be healed. That that Jesus would even interact with people who were being affected by what, what the Scripture calls demons, and he would command the demons to leave And they would leave. That Jesus had even commanded nature to do things, and nature would listen to him. And so Jesus had this huge following. Like everybody kind of wanted to know who is this guy, and what is he all about, and what can he do? So wherever Jesus went, crowds followed him. And people would bring their sick friends, people would bring their neighbors, hey, we got to go see who this Jesus guy is because he was unlike. Anyone who ever walked the face of the earth. And see, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing who he is. Like Jesus is being very intentional, showing people his authority, showing people his sovereignty, showing people his power. And it's all strategic that Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah. Jesus is revealing himself 
is God in the flesh. So he shows them his compassion. He shows them his power. He shows them his sovereignty. And he shows him his authority. And see, people are so attracted to Jesus because he's doing things that, that no one else has ever done. He, he commands nature to do things, and nature listens. Jesus commands sickness to leave, and it leaves. Jesus commands bodies to heal, and they heal. He commands demons, and they listen. In fact, Jesus approaches fishermen and says, hey, leave your family business and follow me. And they do. That Jesus has authority that is unheard of and unseen. In fact, Jesus begins teaching. And even in his teaching, he has this authority because he'll say, you have heard it said. And then he flips the script and he says, but I say to you. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, at the end of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it says the people thought about Jesus. It says that when Jesus finished these sayings. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That Jesus was saying this in his teachings and the things that they were doing, they're going, it's like so audacious, the things that he claims, but it's really weird because he has the authority to do them. And so as we get to Matthew chapter 5, here's the question that everybody's asking, and I think it's the same question that we're invited to wrestle with. I think it's the most important question we can ever ask, and it's this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Like, I would argue with you that the entire Sermon on the Mount, while there's all kinds of topics and all kinds of teachings about all different areas of our life, the main question to wrestle with is who do I believe Jesus is. The question is not, do I agree with his teaching? See, I think that's the mistake we can make when we, we begin to wrestle with the scriptures. The, 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 the question isn't, do I agree? Because Jesus wasn't trying to establish himself as a teacher. Like, Jesus never rolled up on the scene. It was like, I desire to be the greatest teacher that ever was, so wrestle with my teaching. What Jesus is establishing himself as is God in the flesh. So the question isn't, do I agree with what he teaches? The question is, who do I believe him to be? In fact, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. 
So here, here's what I don't want us to do this morning. I don't want us to go, hey, I don't know if I agree with Jesus' teaching. Because I, I think what has to happen is we, we have to respond in a greater way. The question isn't, is Jesus a great teacher? The question is, is Jesus really God in the flesh? Is Jesus really the Messiah? See, one of the things that happens in our culture is we've become way too casual about Jesus. That we think, hey, well, we can just claim some of his scriptures. Like, we can just claim some of his teachings. We can get rid of the teachings that we don't like. But Jesus never came to establish himself as a teacher. He came to establish himself as God. Which means if we believe that he's God, if we really do believe he's God in the flesh, if he's God who went to the cross for our sins, died, buried, and resurrected on the third day and promised that he's coming back again, then the question isn't, do I agree? The question is, if I believe he is God, then I accept his teaching and I adjust my life to follow him. Because we can deny teachers if we don't like their teaching. But if we believe he's God, then we have to respond to him. Now, the reason we bring this up is because this is the authority that Jesus is teaching with. As people gather with Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, this isn't like a casual church picnic. Jesus is speaking with authority. People have seen him do things that no one else has, has ever done in, in their lives. They've never witnessed these kind of healings. They've never witnessed someone tell a storm to go away and the storm goes away. He's never seen someone shut up and cast out demons and they listen. So as Jesus speaks to them, he speaks with great authority. And I believe the crowd that's there is they're asking the very question, who is this Jesus? And Jesus calls them to respond, not necessarily to his teaching, but to his character and to his nature and to his authority that he reveals by how he interacts, by what he teaches, what he says, and what he does. Let's start. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, I want to start with this because what happens is we can read this and see that there's a big crowd, which there was a big crowd. And so Jesus retreats to the side of a mountain. And what the scripture says is disciples, but what most biblical scholars would agree with is this word disciple doesn't just mean the 12 original disciples. This is a smaller group of people, but it's still a large group of people. And so it's kind of the people that said, hey, we see Jesus is going, so we're, we're willing to go where he's going to listen to him teach. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the. Now don't miss this. Jesus begins this huge, long retreat of a message with this question. Who wants to be blessed? Like, who wants to experience the life of blessing? Now, here's what I think as I read the scripture. I think everybody leaned in. I think everybody said, I want to know what this guy's about to say because he has authority and power and sovereignty that we've never seen before. He claims to be God. And so if anybody has the keys to living the blessed life, it's got to be this guy. Now for us, two quick thoughts. See, the reason I think the Sermon on the Mount is so practical for us is because only God knows what makes us truly happy or blessed. 
Like, you don't have to raise your hand, but did anybody really, really want a Christmas gift, and you got it, and it's already lost the frill and the thrill, like it doesn't satisfy like it did on December 25th? See, like, we think what, what we know what will make us happy, but here's what you know and here's what I know. We've all purchased things. We've all done things that we thought would make us happy, and later we find ourselves unhappy again. And so Jesus goes, listen, I know what will bless you. I know what will make you happy, and here's why. Because I created you, and I created the universe that you live in. I know what will fill your heart and what will satisfy you, so I know what you need more than you know what you need. So listen, if you and I want to experience a life that is blessed, then we need to know what Jesus says. I think of it this way. I have a snowblower that was given to me as a gift. It's only like two years old. It's awesome. And I started it before all the snow came, and I put new gas in it. And I put a little, a little bit of sea foam in there, and I fired it up, and I let it run for like a half an hour, and I thought, man, I am good. And then the snow came. So I went out and tried to start my snowblower, and I about threw my shoulder out. Like I'm 90% sure I blew out my rotator cuff trying to start this thing. And I tried, and I tinkered, and I messed with it, and I still couldn't get it to start. So you know what my snowblower needed? It needed someone who understood how it worked and how it was designed more than I understood how it was designed. So I took it to a place in town and they called me and they said, yeah, we got it running, it's fixed. And I said, what was wrong with it? They said, there was just a little bit of fuzz in the carburetor. And I'm like, a little bit of fuzz in the carburetor. That's not something I knew how to deal with. I didn't know you could get fuzz in your carburetor, but I did it. And all I'm trying to say is I think we have to lean into the teachings of Jesus because he probably knows more than you and I know what it takes for us to be blessed. It's even more important than that. Jesus is about to deliver eight characteristics. Jesus is about to give us eight attitudes. Some people have defined them as the beautiful attitudes, the beatitudes, And the reason they're so important is because this is not eight steps to becoming happy. Rather, what Jesus is defining for us is what he expects of, how he defines a Christ follower. What Jesus is about to do is define for every single person what one of his children looks like. The great theologian John Stott says it this way. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. The Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered. It is in his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. So if you consider yourself a Christian, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you're a disciple, these are important teachings for us because Jesus tells us exactly how he characterizes us, exactly how a disciple's made or what a Christ follower truly looks like. Now I know some of you are still waiting for the actual message and we're almost there. But before we can get into the actual message, I have to define three key terms for you. 
Because all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to use three terms, and if we don't understand them, we'll never understand his teaching. So here we go. The first one is this, blessed. Uh, Jesus is going to use the word bless or blessed, and it's a word that actually means happy, but it means more than happy. Most people would translate the word that blessed Jesus used to mean happy of soul. So this isn't circumstantial happy. This is about a happiness that transcends our circumstances. In fact, what Jesus is really talking about is the life characterized by the favor of God. And that the favor of God in your life would result in both goodness and distinctiveness. So this would be about God actively involved, God smiling upon the daily details of your life. And because of that relationship, you would look different. There would be both a goodness and a distinctiveness. That when Jesus says the word blessed, what he really means is you would be favored of God, by God, that you would experience the smile of God. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the blessing we, we end with all the, all the time in Numbers. May he bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you that you would experience the literal smile of God in your life. Now, Jesus is going to use another word. It's the word righteousness. And see, what I don't want us to think, the reason we have to define these is what Jesus isn't saying is if you work hard enough, you will experience God's smile. Because righteousness would be defined this way, living up to God's standard because of God's transforming power. So what the scripture says about every single one of us is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That none of us have a righteousness that pleases God. That none of us come to God with our agenda, with our to-do list, with our trophies, with our accolades. It all equals nothing. But rather through Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection, the big theological word is that Jesus has imparted or imputed his righteousness upon us. So that when our Heavenly Father sees us, he actually sees the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. And more than that, we have the Holy Spirit. So God actually empowers us to do the things he's told us to do. So when Jesus says, blessed be, it isn't because I can accomplish this on my own. That this is only through Jesus that I can have these things. That there would be this desire to obey Jesus. And yet Jesus would also be the one that gives us the power to Obey and follow through on these things. Last but not least, probably the most misunderstood, is this phrase he's going to use over and over and over again. It's the kingdom of God. So I want to define the kingdom of God this way. The kingdom of God is the rule in the reign of God through the people of God. So it's the rule and reign of God primarily through the people of God. The way to think about the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is where the kingdom of heaven meets earth. So for us in the gospels, that's Jesus. So whenever Jesus arrives on the scene, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's really saying is like the Lord's prayer, let your will be done as it is in heaven on earth. So when Jesus is commanding nature, when he's commanding sickness, when he's commanding bodies, when he's commanding demons, it's, an, it's exhibiting that the kingdom of God is here, that there is a king and he rules in his reign and in his kingdom there's way things are done. It's the range of God's effective will. It's the kingdom of God isn't the church but the church is the place where the kingdom of God lives. That The kingdom of God is an inheritance 
to the church. It's a manifestation of the kingdom that we could get together and be a people who are united by the gospel and live for the glory of God. So there's blessed, there's righteousness, and there's the kingdom of God. So here we go. The Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is on the mountainside. There's all kinds of people there. They're, they're wondering who he is. They're, they're questioning. They're listening to him. He teaches with authority. And Jesus starts with this question, who wants to be blessed? And listen, we all want to be blessed. But normally when we think about blessed, what we think about is what other people have. Like blessing would be if I could get that house and blessing would be if I could get that kind of payroll and blessing would be if I could look that way or blessing would be if I could have that certain level of health or if I could drive that certain car. That's how we define blessed. And Jesus says, I'm about to redefine how you, th you think of success. I'm about to redefine how you think about blessing. And what Jesus tells us is God's perspective. He goes, in the kingdom of God, if you want to know what, what God smiles upon, here's what it means to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, what Jesus gives us is eight characteristics. The first four characteristics are all about loving God. The first four characteristics are all about our relationship with God. And so Jesus begins to go, hey, you want to experience the smile of God? The first thing you have to do is have a relationship with God. And he gives us kind of four beautiful attitudes or four characteristics. I want to define some of them because we probably don't know what they mean. And what's interesting is each characteristic or each beautiful attitude comes with a blessing. Now, I would also point this out to you because we don't necessarily have this in English, but uh, this portion of the Bible is written in Greek. And so every time you see that phrase, for theirs is the kingdom or for theirs is, what that word theirs means is this, it's theirs and theirs alone. It's exclusive. It means it's theirs, but only theirs. That this blessing doesn't exist anywhere else on the face of the planet. There's no other way to achieve it. It's theirs and theirs alone. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does that mean? Poor of spirit literally means to have an emptiness of spirit. But poor of spirit is the realization that you and I stand before a holy, holy, holy God and we come empty-handed. We have an empty bank account. We have an empty tank of gas. We have an empty trophy case that we stand before God and we literally have nothing to offer him. And see, sometimes what we do is we fall into this trap to think that we can work our way to God. Or we think we can negotiate with God. We think we can come to God with bargaining chips. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The realization that we don't bring anything to God. Like, I have nothing to offer God. He doesn't need anything from me. And what Jesus does right out of the gate is he slaps our religiousness and our pride in the face. Because this poor in spirit thing is both beautiful and challenging. The reason that it's beautiful is because have you ever had the thought, man, I got to clean myself up before I can go to God? 
Like, I got to get rid of some things. And like, maybe you've had that thought, man, if you only knew what I've done or if you only knew what I've been through, if you only knew what was in my past, then God would never be able to love me. So this is why it's beautiful because you come to God with nothing anyway. Like, you are unable to come to God in such a way that he would say, you're not good enough to come to me because we all come empty-handed. So you don't ever have to worry that you're not good enough for God because here's the thing, none of us are good enough for God. Like none of us come to God and are able to give him his accolades, which is why this is also challenging. Because the longer you follow Jesus, the more you think he might owe you something. And see, coming to Jesus being poor in spirit means I recognize that I'm empty. I have an empty hand, an empty bank account, an empty tank of gas, an empty trophy case. But it also means I don't bring any goodness with me either. Like, I don't get to bring any of this stuff and go, yeah, but God, that one time, and I did that prayer thing, and I served, and I, I went on that mission trip, and like, remember, like, I, I graduated Awana, God? He goes, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, and theirs alone, is the kingdom of heaven. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, my first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my riches, but my need. See, blessed are the poor in spirit because we all come before the Lord empty-handed. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be Comforted, what Jesus says, it goes, it's not that just you're empty-handed. It's not that you don't get to bring anything. It's actually just a little bit worse than that, that every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. That, like, we are like children that climb into the lap of our Heavenly Father, and we slap him in the face, and we think it's cute. That every single one of us rebels against God. Every single one of us sins against God. See, there's this thing that can happen in the life of a Christian. And see, what happens is, is that when you first begin to wrestle with Jesus, when you first get saved, and when you first start going to church, what happens is, is you become highly aware of your sin to the point that it bothers you. But what happens is, is you can walk with Jesus long enough that all of a sudden what happens is, is we don't spend time looking in the mirror anymore, and so we're not so much bothered by our sins, we just become more bothered by everybody else's sins. And so what happens is we always look out, and we're like, you know, that person's sin really bothers me, and that really bothers me, and I'm really upset about that, but we don't really spend any time recognizing our sin and being heartbroken over it. When I was first going to church, I once heard somebody describes sin this way. Sin is spelled S-I-N. Sin is always when I put I in the center. Sin is when it's about my wants, my desires, my way, my wishes, establishing my kingdom in my throne. That whenever we sin, it's because we put I in the center instead of Christ in the center. See, what Jesus says is actually what's a blessed life is realizing that we come empty-handed, but also realizing that what we do bring with us is our sin, and we should mourn over that sin. We should be bothered by our sinfulness and our brokenness. We should never become calloused or okay with the sin that we bring. 
but there's a beautiful blessing. Jesus says, those who mourn will be comforted. In fact, the word comforted that is used there alludes to the Holy Spirit. So what happens is, is that when you and I spend time being broken over our sinfulness, what happens is God meets with us. And Jesus promised, I will send you my comforter, the Holy Spirit. And see, the way that you and I are comforted is that, first of all, we receive forgiveness. That every time we come to God with our sin and go, hey, I'm guilty and I'm confessing and God, I'm broken, that what we know is God always extends forgiveness to us. We are always forgiven. We are always set free. The chains are always broken. We are always made new. See, the goal of our lives isn't to become 2.0 or a better version of ourselves. What we need is a new nature, a new heart, a new character, a new life that is given to us only through Jesus. See, the other way we're comforted is through relationship. You know what happens every time you go to Jesus with your brokenness? You know what happens every time you go to God with your sinfulness? Not only does he forgive you, but he calls you his son or his daughter. That God always gives you more of himself. So when we wrestle with our, our sinfulness, when we go to God in mourning, what we always get is more of God so that we're comforted. And see, what happens is, is I think what Jesus is doing is he's kind of building characteristics. And so he says, listen, if you're poor in spirit, then you should also mourn from time to time over your sinfulness. And see, when you're poor in spirit and when you're mourning over your sinfulness, you know what is a result in our lives? Meekness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Now, we don't really understand this because this isn't a word that we use very often. In fact, just the very word meek means gentle, humble, considerate, courteous, and compassionate. In fact, for the first listeners of Jesus... They're on the mountain. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, what they instantly hear is Psalm 37. Because what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is exactly what David says in Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, 11, David says this, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So they go, oh, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about, he's talking about when God had promised the nation of Israel the promised land, but there's wicked people in the promised land. And so what did God tell his people to be meek, to be patient, to trust in the Lord, to wait on him, to be obedient? And what was the promise? You will inherit the land that I have given to you. David says in Psalm 37, verse 21, The wicked borrows, but he does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who is a great theologian and preacher, says meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It is my attitude towards myself, and it is an expression of that relationship to others. That meekness is kind of this idea of going, hey, I I, I am amazed that God can think of me the way he thinks of me. 
And because God has given me grace and given me mercy and given me compassion, I'm going to give you those same things. Like, listen, I don't live for my kingdom. I don't live for me to be first. I live for him to be first. And because I live for his glory, I can treat you differently than if I was living for me and for my glory. And then Jesus goes on to say, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But what Jesus is talking about here is what is our pursuit or what is our desire? Like when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is not a casual, hey, it's late at night and I could go for a snack, hunger. But what Jesus is talking about is what I would define as hangry, okay? When you're both hungry and angry. Like when you're so hungry, you're stuffing traffic in your car, and you consider sticking your hand between the seats to see if you can find any snacks in there. Like praying for a clean gummy bear or something. That kind of hungry. Like so hungry that you would be willing to knock somebody over on your way to the fridge, hungry. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The way that David says it in Psalm 63.1 is like this. He says, oh God, you are my God. And earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, there is no water. David says his thirst for Jesus is like when your mouth is dry. And you can't get any moisture in there. You know what I'm talking about? When when you're so thirsty because you're actually famished. David goes, that's my desire. I so yearn for the Lord. Let me ask you, church, when's the last time you yearned for the Lord? Like, when was the last time that your heart's cry was, give me Jesus or give me death? Like, when have you had that yearn to be like, listen, God, what I need is you. What I need is for you to show up. I need your presence in my life. I need your presence in my marriage. I need your presence in the life of my children. I need your presence in my workplace. I need your presence in my neighborhood. I need your presence in my county. I need your presence in my nation. When have we yearned for God? Because don't miss the promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me ask you this. How different would your life look if you were actually satisfied? How different we would be. And I love kind of the the language and the image that Jesus uses. I don't know about for you, but this is kind of what I get to is I think what Jesus is talking about is a hunger and a satisfaction that is kind of like Chinese food. Because you can have really great Chinese food, but Chinese food doesn't stay with you very long. So like you can eat Chinese food and still be hungry for more. I think that's why there's Chinese buffets. is because they know you can eat a ton of it, and if you wait a while, you can get some more in because it doesn't stay with you. That's why there's not steak buffets. Because they know one big steak and you're done. But Chinese food has this kind of, yeah, I'm satisfied, but I think I can get another egg roll in a minute. And I think that's what Jesus is saying about is that that we seek him, we hunger and thirst for him, we receive him, and yet we're hungry for more. They were like, Jesus, I need you. And now that I have you, you know what I want? I want some more. Hey, Jesus, I I got some of you, but what I need is, Jesus, I need another egg roll of you. Like, I'm still hungry for more, and Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. For those, for them alone, they will be satisfied. And then Jesus kind of switches categories. See, the first four are all about our relationship with God. But the second four Beatitudes are all about our relationship with other people. Like, it's as though Jesus and his teaching is like, oh, by the way, you want to know what the most important command is? Love God and love people. In fact, the, the things, the manifesto I'm going to give you, the characteristics I'm going to define you by, you know how they're broken down? Two categories, love God and love people. He says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall receive God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what does he mean? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The word mercy literally means those who show compassion and forgiveness to others. Think of it this way. There are people in your life who drive you nuts. There are people in your life that know how to get under your skin. They frustrate you. They annoy you. They make you angry. In fact, if you're being totally honest, there's some of you here that hope heaven is a really big place because there's people that you don't want to bump into there. And what Jesus says is that our hearts should be ones of mercy. That we go, man, you drive me bonkers. But because God has shown me mercy, I can show you mercy. Because God has shown me compassion, I can show you compassion. Now, oh no, we don't have a ton of time for this, but every single family that I've ever met has their own unique style of family rules. So like in my family as a kid, like one of our rules was when you came in the door, you had to take your shoes off. You didn't go any further in the house with your shoes on. But then I would go to my friend's house who that wasn't their family rule. And like I'd be the guy like taking their shoes off and people like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm like, if my mom sees me in your house with my shoes on, she will kill me. So I'm going to take my shoes off. Like one of our family rules was like no one could be on the phone past 10 o'clock ever. I don't know how that rule started, but it was a rule. Like, it, like some of you don't maybe remember this, but there was a time when a phone hung on the wall and it had a really long cord on it so you could walk. And my mom would take the phone off the hook at night because no one was allowed to call it. Like, like there could be a national disaster, but you could not get a hold of our house past 10 o'clock because the phone was off the hook on the floor and it'd be like, uh, 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 which meant no calls coming in and no calls going out. And see, what Jesus says is, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who show grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. And you know why they're called sons of God? It's because it actually reflects that we're his children. That, that what happens is, is we interact with his grace and his mercy and his compassion. We're able to give it to other people. That when we exhibit the attitude of mercy, it's a reality that Christ is working in me. And then Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A lot of people misinterpret this to mean, blessed are the perfect in heart. But that's not what Jesus is saying. 
Because if Jesus was saying, blessed are the perfect in heart, we'd all be disqualified. Like everybody just come off the mountain. Like that was great, but I, I can't do that. Jesus isn't saying the perfect in heart. When he says pure in heart, it's about a singleness or a devotion. Now, you might say, well, hey, pastor, you told me that the first four were about my relationship with God and my second four were about my relationship with other people. How in the world is this about other people? It's because you and I tend to seek the approval of man more than we seek the approval of God. So he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who live for one. Blessed are those who seek the audience of God. Blessed are those that seek the smile of God. Blessed are those who only live for the glory of one, God. Which means, if we take this seriously, it means I don't have to worry about what you think about me. Which means if I don't have to worry what you think about me, and if you don't have to worry about what I think about you, you know what I can be? I can be real. I can be real about my brokenness. I can be real about my struggles. I can be real about my weaknesses. I can be real about what I'm going through because I don't live for your approval anyway. I live for the approval of Jesus. And see, it means that I can come to church and say, hey, I am not okay. That church should always be a place where it's okay to not be okay because we're all a little bit jacked up anyway. And that church should be a place where we can come and say, I'm broken, I'm beat up, I'm messed up, I'm limping along, and all I need is Jesus. And we would link arms and say, I'm with you, let's go after Jesus together. That the church is supposed to be a group of hurting, broken, messed up people who are just going after Jesus together. And if I'm pure in heart, it means I don't live for your glory. And if you're pure in heart, it means you don't live for my glory. It means what we really care about is God and the things that he cares about. We're almost done. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, this one is interesting because what most people see when they, when they read this one is they think, blessed are the pacifists. Blessed are those who never start an argument. Blessed are those who never enter any kind of conflict. But that's not what Jesus is actually saying. What Jesus is saying is that a peacemaker is someone who goes out of their way to produce peace when there is no peace. In fact, usually in a world of sinful people where there's conflict, the only way to get to peace is usually to have a little bit of war to get there. If you think about Jesus, he's our example. Jesus is a peacemaker. Jesus existed. He came so that we could be at peace with God. And yet, look at the turmoil and the conflict and all the things. Like, Jesus is a peacemaker, but he's in the temple flipping tables, hitting people with a bullwhip. Like, sometimes the only way to get to peace is to embrace a little bit of conflict. And see, what can happen in the church especially is when there's a little bit of conflict, when there's a little bit of hurt feelings, when things aren't maybe going the way that we think we should go, instead of embracing conflict, we just quietly leave. And see, I think the gospel doesn't give us permission just to dump people because we have a little bit of conflict with people. So I think the gospel gives us the power to work through the conflict, through the drama, through the difficulty, through the offense, so that we can get to the other side, which is reconciliation and peace. 
I think there's two, I think there's two ways we mess this up. Either we speak all truth with no love, which makes us jerks. Have you ever met that guy? You ever met that girl that just feels they need to tell you the truth all the time with no love? Like the person that goes, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, and you're like, why are you talking to me? I just want to punch you in the throat. That person, it's not what Jesus is talking about. See, if we just are all about truth and pointing out people's weaknesses and always convicting people with no love, that actually makes us spiritual jerks. But see, the other side of that coin is we give all love with no truth. So we never call anybody out. We never have a hard conversation. We never say that's sinful. We never say that's wrong. And you know what that makes us? Cowards. What Jesus says is, blessed are the peacemakers. See, the other side of being a peacemaker is living at peace as much as it depends on you with other people. So that means, hey, if I think something's wrong, I might need to have a conversation with you. Or if, you, if I think, hey, there's a tear in this relationship, it means that I'm willing to go out of my way to have a conversation with you because I want peace. But it also means that I live my life in such a way that I want to see people experience the peace of God. So I have to tell them about the gospel. It means that sometimes I have to say, no, no, that, that's wrong. Or, hey, no, no, there's a better way. That I have to tell people that there is a God who loves them and sent his son to die on the cross in the place for their sins. And he calls them to repentance. He calls them to relationship. And I want to see as many people saved as possible. And see, I think that's why Jesus says, number eight, blessed are the persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom. See, we're called to make peace, but there will be people who refuse to have peace with us. Here's the good news, church. The gospel is already offensive enough, so we don't have to be. Like the most offensive thing in our church should be the gospel. The most offensive things in our lives should be the fact that we love Jesus and we're trying to be more like him. And there will be people who will reject you. There will be people who ignore you. There will be people who hate you. And there will be people who persecute you because you love Jesus. You know how I know that? Because Jesus promised us that if we love him and if we follow him, people will treat us like they treated him. Which means if you're not experiencing persecution, are you really living for Jesus? See, if you're going the way of the world, you're going with the grain. But if you're following Jesus, you're going against the grain, which will always create a little bit of friction. And here's all I'm saying, church. There's far too many churches that experience no persecution because the world has so much influence in the church, you can't tell the difference anyway. And Jesus stands up on the mountainside and goes, oh, by the way, Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Blessed are those who are hated, persecuted, dismissed, mistreated, and thrown in prison, and even killed for my sake. Like, by the way, this isn't when, like, somebody cuts you off in traffic. That isn't, I've been persecuted. Persecuted is when Jesus says, when you live for my glory and it causes problems, then there is blessing. And see, here would be the mistake. The mistake would be to get to the end of this list and to say to ourselves, you know what, in 2018, 
I got my eight to-dos. I'm just going to be better. I'm just going to be better at being poor in spirit. I'm going to be better at mourning. I'm going to be better at being meek. I'm going to be better at hunger and thirsting for righteousness. I'm going to be better. Like Jesus isn't giving us an invitation of things to do. I think part of the reason these are called the Beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes, is because it's a reminder that Jesus is inviting us to be. That this is more about embracing the teacher than it is embracing the teaching. In fact, if we fully want to embrace the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the only way to do that is to fully embrace the teacher. What I'm saying is the only way to be more poor in spirit, the only way to have more mourning, the only way to experience these blessedness is through Jesus, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. I can't do it, and you can't do it on our own, and it would be a mistake to try. See, through Christ, we've been given his forgiveness. We've been given his victory. We've been given his righteousness. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, Jesus is the embodiment of all of these things. And so if we want to embrace the Beatitudes, we really have to embrace Jesus and allow him to work in us to make us more and more like him. So at the end of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, here's the one thing we can't be. We can't be casual about Jesus. Like this isn't somewhere you go home and go, you know what, I think I'm going to crochet this and throw it up on the wall. Like the question is, do you believe that Jesus is God? Like do you believe that when he says, blessed are these types of people and theirs alone are these rewards, do you believe that he has the authority to make those statements? Will you worship him and surrender to him or will you deny him and hate him? Because the invitation is an invitation to a relationship with the Savior who loves you and wants what's best for you. And God's best for you is always found in his presence. So you can't be casual. But you can surrender and experience the blessing and the joy and the peace and the life that comes from Christ and Christ alone.